You guys, we are going to make it through the end of this seventh chapter before we take a break from the Gospel of John. Nathan will preach the last section next week. And then we're going to take a break and, and study First Peter for the summer. But I'm excited that you might see this section, these three verses, verses 37 through 39 of the seventh chapter, that we would see them fresh before we take a break from John. As you hear these, I want you to notice that Jesus is offering something. And there are three things that I want you to notice in the beginning. I want you to know the day that the offer was made. And I want you to know what the offer is and what the outcome of that offer is. Those are just the three things that I want you to see in this passage. But I want you to see them today because this passage has everything to do with what we are doing today as we gather in God's presence. It was interesting for me to get to sit back in the back row last week as Nathan preached and to listen as you all listen so often. You know that my life is odd as a minister and as a preacher, and I think about the church in ways that some of you may not think about the church every moment of every day. And the distraction and the, and, and the difficulty of being able to pay attention. But I want to ask you a question as you come in today. What are you expecting to receive? What are you expecting to get out of the next 30 minutes? Out of the last 30 minutes? Out of the entirety of this worship service? From the invocation to the benediction? What are you expecting because that's what this passage is actually talking about. And I want to show you that by, again, showing you these three things. I want to bring attention to the day in which Jesus makes this offer. I want to show you the offer that Jesus makes. And finally, I want to show you the outcome of that offer. So let's look at these verses with me, if you will. Verses 37, 38, and 39. It starts with a very specific day. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried. I want you to consider the day that is taking place in this passage. It's the last day of the feast. Nathan showed us in the passage last week and even in the week before I was able to demonstrate to you that this is the Feast of Booths. It's going to be about another six months before Passover happens again, before Jesus enters Jerusalem publicly, and before Jesus is going to be hailed as Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on that Palm Sunday, but on that Good Friday will be crucified. Six months from now, Jesus has told his brothers already, I'm not going up to this feast in public. This feast was all about a feast of harvest and joy and celebration and rejoicing. This was the feast of the year that you wanted to be in Jerusalem. It was the best. It was seven days of rejoicing and feasting, celebrating the harvest and all that God had done. The festival of the booths, it reminded the Israelites of when God brought them through the wilderness and they created booths, tabernacles out in the wilderness and there's no accident that the booths and the tabernacles are the same word because God tabernacled among them, right? And how God provided for them in the wilderness. That's why the celebration of this feast had to do with water and light 
right? That God brought water out of the rock in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. And how he, with a great light, a cloud of lightning at night, lit up the sky and the way for his Israelites. How he cared for them and gave them everything that they needed. Everything that they needed. So that they would say after 40 years, not even the soles of our shoes have worn out. That's a pretty amazing, right? And they're there celebrating this. It is a raucous party for seven days in the presence of God that honored him. In fact, that he commanded. It wasn't the Israelites' idea. Leviticus 23 tells us all about this festival of booths. And it says that on this last day, the great day, Jesus stood up in public. And instead of demonstrating signs, we see in the Gospel of John... In this public account by Jesus' own choice that now he decides to stand up and to say what he's about to say. This day, after seven days of rejoicing and feasting, after the water had been poured out on the altar and dripped out of the threshold of the temple, after the lights had been lit every night for seven days, the great torches in Jerusalem that would have lit up the temple complex... On this last day, the eighth day of the feast, there was a solemn assembly. No work was to be done. There was not celebration yet because there was waiting on the spiritual realities that all of God's provision in the desert had pointed to. And the Israelites spent this eighth day waiting, waiting as they prayed with hope and expectation, their hearts filled with joy and excitement and anticipation about what the Lord would do and how he would send his Messiah that one day. And all of the spiritual realities would come to be real in front of them. This eighth day of provision. This eighth day is a special day in the Old Testament. It was on the eighth day that the priests began to minister as God called them to minister before the people in the tabernacle. Did you know that when a priest was called to be a priest, for the first seven days, they just had to be consecrated. They had to be set apart. They had to be made holy. They were going through this ordination process for seven days. But on the eighth day, on the eighth day, was when they began their work of mediating between God and his people. But that's not the only thing that happened on the eighth day. Isn't it interesting that on the eighth day, we are told that young Hebrew boys were circumcised on the eighth day. It's an amazing reality. Did you know that medical professionals have determined that on the eighth day, a little boy has the most tolerance against pain? <laughs> because that's going to be a painful day. You know what I mean? But it's on the eighth day that that child receives the sign of the covenant. Receives that right of purification on the eighth day. And you go, Bradley, there's seven days. We all know this. There are seven days. But God pointed to the eighth day. And here Jesus on the eighth day stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. 
When was Jesus raised from the dead? Remember, what's the seventh day? God did all of his work in six days. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, he rested from his work. And we're commanded to rest from our work as well. Jesus on the cross on the sixth day finished his work. He cried from the cross. It is finished. And on the seventh day, he rested in the grave. And on the eighth day, he rose again from the dead. Jesus rose again on that eighth day. This eighth day that the church fathers in the very first century of the church began to say that it was the eighth day that was the beginning of a whole nother world. Another church father, Justin Martyr, said that this eighth day, the day of resurrection, was the first of all of the remaining days. It was the very first of the rest of the eight days that would ever exist. On this eighth day, when Jesus rose again from the dead, it was the sign of a new creation where death would be defeated. The old has passed, the new has come. And this eighth day, this eighth day is a new reality. The church celebrates the Lord's day on the day after the Jewish Sabbath, the eighth day. That's what today commemorates. It commemorates the first of the eight days when Jesus rose again from the dead. That's why we're here. That's what we are celebrating. That's why Nathan's work at MIT is called the Octet Collaborative. It's, it's those who know the eighth day of new creation gathering together and saying, how do we help human flourishing in this beautiful but broken, this glorious but lost world in which we live? The octet collaborative, those of the eighth day gathering together, gathering together to celebrate the new reality this day, this Sunday, is about us celebrating that day with hope and expectation. It's what every other day of the week points us to. It's the day where we stop and we remind each other, remember what we're working toward. Remember the hope that is set before us, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 to his people. He says, remember, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and therefore I'm going to pray that God would open the eyes of your hearts, that you would know the hope to which you have been called. Do you know what we have celebrated since you sat down with an invocation? And that we will celebrate until we leave with the benediction. That we would know the hope to which we have been called, church. That our eyes would be taken off of the rest of what's happening today, baseball practice, you know, going home and washing the dirty hockey gear, trying to figure out how to pack for the next trip, trying to figure out how camp schedules are going to work. No, today is a day where we remember the hope to which we have been called. That we remember that the world is not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be broken and lost. It's not always going to pull our children away from the reality that God has proclaimed in his word. But Jesus has risen from the dead so that death does not have its sting anymore. 
that this is the eighth day where we celebrate life and we remember Jesus is making everything new and we're filled with hope. That's what today is. That's why we are gathered today. That's what we have come to receive today. And that's why I have asked you, what did you come to church expecting today? What did you expect? What did you expect to receive? Because the celebration of the church gathered celebrates the day that Jesus rose again from the dead and that there is hope in the face of everything. Do you know what it means that you cannot say anymore? That's never going to happen. You can't say that anymore. You can't say that, that that will never happen, that they will never change, that there will never be reconciliation. We can't say that anymore because Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. What did you come to church expecting today to receive? What did you come to church today being in the place of needing to be reminded of? Sisters, brothers, do you know that we have hope? We have hope because Jesus was raised from the dead. New creation has broken in on this world and in your lives and in my life. And there is hope for you. Do you know why you don't have to look at the world and say, well, the world is just going to hell in a handbasket? Is because Jesus has been raised from the dead? That's a good thing, right? That's exciting. That means that there is hope. That means that we keep seeking. We keep striving. We keep engaging. We keep loving. We keep demonstrating mercy. We keep going. But for that to happen, we need to hear what Jesus says. Because it says here that he stood up and that he cried out, Are you thirsty? Church, I want to ask you today, do you hear this cry? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? From the invocation to the benediction, what did you come to expect? The second thing I want you to see is the offer, and it's right there in verse 37 as well. Jesus says it very plainly. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What is he offering? Well, it's implied, right? Because if you drink it, it, it must be something to drink. And the water rite is the central rite to the entire Feast of the Booths. He's offering living water. It's not the first time we've seen him offer it, is it? Where else have we seen him offer it? Chapter 4 of John, the woman at the well, right? He says to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink of water, you'd ask me for a drink of water. And what did he say? And I would give you living water. Anyone who drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again, is what he tells the woman at the well. Jesus invites us to come to him and to drink. To whom does he make that offer? It's pretty simple here. Anyone who is thirsty. The one who is in need of a drink, Jesus makes the offer to. Jesus says, come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me and I will give you a drink. Nathan's song that he sung as the offertory was from Psalm 42. And you know Psalm 42, church. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants after you or longs for you, God. My soul thirsts for you as 
one in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Thirst is central to the psalmist's prayer. Psalm 63, Psalm 153, 143. Thirst points us toward something. Did you know, Christian, did you know, human, that you are designed toward dependence? The independence that our world tells you is the goal of your life is false. You, children, are designed to depend. You are designed to be dependent, and your thirst points to that. Your thirst, your very thirst points to it. That's why Jesus grabbed something that all of you can relate to. You're sunburned. Why? Because you're dehydrated. What do you need? You need water. Right? You're thirsty. Have you ever grabbed water and, and you drink and you go, man, I had no idea that's what I needed. That's wild. I just needed that. That was incredible. One of our former members has developed a chip that actually harvests energy from all types of sources that it's placed into, whether it's vibration, whether it's solar, whether it's, um, whether it's friction. It can harvest energy. You, human being, not you. That's not what you can do. You can't harvest energy from whatever source you want to. You were designed to be dependent on the only one who could satisfy your thirst. So why do we thirst? The prophet Jeremiah explains it very clearly why we thirst. The claim against the Israelites in Jeremiah 2 is that they have forsaken me, God says. And guess what God calls himself in Jeremiah 2? That they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, he says. That's incredible, right? That they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns. Children, do you know what a hewn out cistern is? Imagine a big rock. And imagine in this big rock, you want to hold water. And so you take another rock and you start digging away at the rock. And after a long, long time and a lot of people helping you, you have hewn out a cistern. But the prophet Jeremiah says you have forsaken the stream of living water that's right over here. And instead you have gone right over here and you've hewn out a cistern for yourselves that is broken and cracked and doesn't even hold water. And that's why you're thirsty. Now imagine the picture of that. Imagine me sitting at the cistern waiting for it to be filled. But there's a crack in it, so even when it rains, it drips off. And right over here is a flowing stream of water. That's why we're thirsty. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me and drink, they'll never be thirsty again. But the reason that we as human beings thirst is because we look somewhere else for our satisfaction. Look, you know what this is like, don't you? You know what it's like. And you would think God must be tired. He must be exhausted of me looking somewhere else. Well, let's look at what it's offered. What's implied here is living water. And it comes from whom? Jesus. And you go, what does he mean that they come and drink? Is he really just giving glasses of water out? Is that what he means? And then Jesus says in 38, whoever believes in me, so to drink from him and to believe in him are the same. And what do we believe in what Jesus is portraying? You guys, Jesus has come to make known to us the love of the Father for us. Right? John 3.16 reminds us of this. John 20, you know it, 
reminds us of who Jesus is and what he came to do to demonstrate the love of the Father for us, what are we told by Paul in Romans 5? That the love of God is poured out into our hearts, poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, right? That what we need to know, what we need to drink from, what we need to take in today is remembering the love of the Father for us. That's what we drink. I have another question for you before we leave this. From where are you most tempted to drink other than right here on Sunday afternoons? Where else are you most tempted to go? Some of you might raise the heart of your hand and say, anywhere but here. I'm only here because somebody made me come here. Some of you may say, I've tried to drink everywhere else and it never satisfies. In fact, I go away more dehydrated than before. Some of you will say, there is nowhere else I have to go. I drink here. This is where my soul is fed on the truth of the love of God portrayed to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The last thing that I want you to look at with me is the outcome. Verse 38. Look at what it says here. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John writes, Jesus doesn't speak in 39. John writes to us, now this he, Jesus, said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is the outcome of those who drink from Jesus, the source, the living water, the spirit who testifies to our spirit about God and his character, God and his work through Christ, God and his purpose in your life and mine and ours? What happens to the person that drinks that water? Rivers of living water or abundant waters flow from them. You see, this is a transformation from thirst, from, from a, a deficit to an incredible benefit. To an incredible gift that you need to be able to offer others. From you and I, who believe in Jesus, as the scriptures say, Flow living waters. Jesus has said this before. Again, the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. This is amazing, isn't it? Coming to Jesus, believing what he says about who God is, who we are as his image bearers, but in desperate need of being saved, and believing in Christ as our salvation and resting in his love for us transforms us. What comes out of a person's heart that doesn't believe what God says about, what Jesus says about who God the Father is? What Jesus has said, it's not what goes into a human being that defiles him or her, but it's what comes out of them. For out of their heart comes all the stuff that defiles us, Right? But suddenly those who drink from living water 
Now out of their heart flows rivers of living water. That's incredible, isn't it? That is a complete and total transformation because of belief. Because you believe rightly about God. Rightly about ourselves. And rightly about God's purposes in this world. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says, as the scripture references. It's really interesting. It's hard to go back and follow that. You go back and you go, where does the scripture say that out of, you know, a a believer's heart is going to flow rivers of living water? There is a specific veiled reference in Isaiah 58. You can go back and look it up, Isaiah 58, 11. It's a fascinating text. It talks about solemn uh, assemblies. It talks about holy days and it talks about fasting. And it says, this is the fast that God requires to be generous, to offer yourself to another, to help the oppressed, to be with the outcast. And he said, when you live that way, you will become, and guess what he says, springs of living water. That's how he describes the people of God in Isaiah 58, 11. But most folks will say that as the scriptures say, is the whole kit and caboodle of Jesus making himself known at this feast of the booths. How Jesus has said, look, in the same way that we celebrate that God gave water through the rock in the desert, that God gave manna to us, God, if you come to me and if you believe in me, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah 8 and 9 testified to the first time that the exiles came back to Egypt and celebrated the Feast of Booths. And in that chapter, it says all of these references, and it even says that God will give us his good spirit on that day. And it's most likely that Jesus is incorporating the entirety of the Feast of Booths as it's taught in the Old Testament. But isn't it interesting that just like the fruit of the Spirit, these rivers of living water are for others. We need to not think that we have these fruits of the Spirit or the living waters, the Spirit by ourselves and what we do. Jesus is the source. That's why we come and we worship Him and we remind ourselves day in and day out, every Sunday, of the truth. So that we produce fruit as we abide in Him and He in us, right? We produce much fruit. That fruit is not for you to eat. (laughs) The trees that live beside the rivers of living water and revelation have leaves. Do you know what those leaves are used for? The healing of the nations. Do you know why you bear fruit? And why, Christian, if you drink from the reality that Jesus is, rivers of living water flow up from you, it is for others that they would know Christ. Paul again says, not only the hope to which we have been called, but God's valuation from us, what we learn from Jesus, that God, we are God's rich inheritance, but it's not just that. 
No, he says this is the third thing that he wants us to know. He wants us to know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. The power of the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural river, isn't it? But it's not the only supernatural river in the Bible. Ezekiel 47 is a story about the prophet Ezekiel who sees a vision. And guess what he sees? He sees a temple in all of its beauty and it's abandoned. No one's there. But out of one edge of the temple, he sees a trickle of water flowing. And unlike any other river that you know, this supernatural river is a trickle in its beginning. But as it goes from the temple, it gets wider and deeper every measurement that Ezekiel takes. That water, as it flows from the temple, gets wider and deeper. That's an amazing river. You've never seen a river like that with one source that gets wider and deeper as it flows. How do you understand that? Well, we understand it because Jesus has said, whoever is thirsty, anyone who thirsts, let them come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Christians, that's us. That water that flows, flows through us. You're not just a vessel that thirsts anymore. You are now a conduit for the work of the Holy Spirit into the world that God has sent you. Graduates, God is sending you into the world. You're not just going to get better educated so that you can get a little bit more money so that your life can turn out the way that you want to live it. Listen, if your parents have told you that you can do anything, it's a lie. You can't do anything you want. Don't believe that. God has created you for specific purposes. To glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. He has got you planned. You fit into His plan. And as a conduit who feeds on the reality of Christ, from you flows rivers of living water into the world. My question for you in ending is what or whom are you pouring into? And you go, you know, I just don't even think about my life that way, Bradley. I want you to stop. And ask you, what do you expect when you come to church on Sunday? Because listen, the Acts of the Apostles continues through the life of the church. It is the work of Jesus Christ through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, women and men. He's working through us in this world. Have you decided that you want nothing to do with the world? You're going to build high walls? Get behind them? I want to tell you to stop. Stop building high walls and hiding behind them. But let what the Spirit is producing in your life as you trust in Christ feed those around you. Look, you're going to have roommates that you've never met before. You're going to have neighbors that you don't know. They are lost without Christ. Lost. But Jesus invites anyone who is thirsty to come and to drink. 
And that whoever believes in him out of their hearts will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said this of the spirit who had not been given yet. Because why? Christ had not been glorified yet. Because Christ didn't just tell us God loves us. Christ, in obedience to the Father, was crucified on the cross for your sins and mine. He paid the penalty because God loves this world. You guys, feeding in Christ, drinking from him, receiving the Spirit generates in us rivers of living water. And that is why we live where we live. That's why your address is what it is. And when your parents ask you, why do you live there? You can say, I live there because this is where God has put me. He's put me here so that people would know the love of the Father. What do you expect when you come on Sundays? You expect to be fed, don't you? Let's go to the table and feed now. Pray with me.